Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. On this week's show, we talk to Naomi Hirahara, author of the Moss Arai series, the author of the Ellie Rush mystery series, and the co-author of the new nonfiction book, Terminal Island. We discuss the new literary aggregator, Lit Hub, Are they a Trojan horse for the publishing industry or a welcome addition to the internet literary conversation? But first, we talk to our resident critical theorist, Tom Lutz, about the role of critical theory in literature and at LARB. He'll tell us what heteroglossia means, and if you're awake after that, you'll get cookies. Tom, as a critical theorist yourself, how do you view it when somebody, uh, a colleague, submits a piece on critical theory? Do you look at that any differently because that is your particular area of expertise? Well, I, I don't know if it's my particular area of expertise. I, it is something I've read about. It's something I've... We'd say one of yeah, them. Yeah, I know some stuff in that field. I'm not a critical theorist. The way, you know, Virginia Jackson, for instance, who just wrote for us on the function of criticism at the present time, she's a critical theorist. She really knows critical theory. Uh, she's got a piece about Lauren Berlant and her relationship to the kind of long tradition of literary criticism. She re- references Matthew Arnold regularly through the piece. And... I think that it's interesting in relation to the the whole question of what we post and what we don't post in it. Uh, every once in a while, we want to reflect on what we mean when we say that. Everybody's got a kind of anti-theory. Everybody who's not involved in it has an anti-theory bias in general because they don't get the, the jargon. They don't know the jargon. And it seems alienating to them. Well, critical theory for me ex- exists as a scrim between the the work and the experience. And so I'm, I'm not a big fan of critical theory, I find. However, there are certain critics, and I'm thinking specifically of Clive James, who mm-hmm. was such an engaging pro stylist. He has a sense of humor. His breadth of knowledge is so wide that I'm always happy to read what he has to say about anything because he's able to popularize these very complex thoughts. Yeah, sure. That's an important function to have a popularizer. But that's not the only thing that we're allowed to do. I mean, it's like kind of like saying, well, you know, the physics of petroleum are, you know, some kind of scrim between me and driving down a beautiful highway. No, I mean, you want somebody who knows how petroleum functions in an engine and how you want your your engineers to know what they're talking about and you don't expect to know what two engineers are saying when they talk to each other right somehow anything having to do with literature is automatically supposed to be all access all the time and no there's a professional discourse going on there's a professional conversation going on see i'm not i'm not denying the value of either the piece or the field but for me as a writer i find that very distracting I find theory very, very distracting. Yeah, although wouldn't you say that if you're sitting around with people and and we start throwing around, well, you know, I mean, Dickens and Eliot, we have these names that we use and they're shortcuts to discuss a, a whole way of representing the world in literary terms. People don't know those names. They feel alienated by that conversation. Does that mean we, we shouldn't ever use those names? No, 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 of course not. But right. I think it's, it's, it's literary theory is just so abstruse to most people that it's, 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 it's inside baseball. And if you're inside yeah. baseball, then, of course, it's utterly compelling. And if you're not, 
it remains alienating. Of course, and that's true of anything. You said that it wasn't helpful in what you're trying to do. You mean as a writer? Yeah, exactly. As mm-hmm. somebody who writes fiction, I find theory just distracting, really. I mean, it's it can be interesting as an intellectual parlor game, but for me, that's all the value it has. I don't want to be thinking about theory because that I, I, I'm trying to write from another place. Mm-hmm. What's, what's a three-act structure? What do you mean? When people talk about a three-act structure. A three-act structure is here's a cat... The cat goes up the tree. Yeah. You wave a stick at it in the second act, and the third act is the cat comes down from the tree. Yeah, you know that. When you say three-act structure, nobody, except for people who are inside baseball, know what you're talking about. Sure. Right? Yeah, I think we're just talking about questions of degree, and, and I can tolerate a, a, a relatively <laughs> low... <laughs> low amount of theoretical palaver is, I guess, what I'm but saying. But it's an interesting question. Who is it for? You know, when you talk about a popular critic like you know, say Pauline Kael, some people ignored her work. Some directors, some film directors actually changed their work in response to what her conversation was about their work. Well, a fantastic footnote to Pauline Kael's career is she actually was hired by Paramount to sit on the lot and read scripts. And that was kind of a disaster. She went back to The New Yorker after that. Well, the two things seem to exclude each other because it's it's the rare critic who is the great artist. Uh, T.S. Eliot comes to mind, but they're very few. Very few, really. yeah. I once in a while teach a course on literary theory for writers. I used to teach courses on literary theory for English PhD students. They need theory for what they do, and it's part of their basic professional equipment. For writers, it's never been accepted as part of basic equipment. It's not necessary. And I, of course, have a lot of resistance from the students coming in, although they sign up for it, so it's not that. They're curious enough. They feel that maybe they can learn something. And most of them get one over over the course of the time. You read somebody like Bakhtin, Russian guy from the 20s and 30s who wrote this incredible stuff. It's extremely difficult to read without a little help, without a little glossary. But I guarantee you, and I'm going to make you do, I'm going to, I'm going to tie you down and make you read Bakhtin for a couple of hours, and I guarantee you're going to come out happy that you did it. Tom, off mic, you dropped a word I had never heard called heteroglossia, and that's what I'm talking about. Now, <laughs> I want you to defend your use okay. of the word heteroglossia. Um, First, tell me what it means. All right. Uh, let me say this. Bakhtin says that we often think about the novel as, you know, kind of a narrator speaking, telling us something, and then characters who then speak. Bakhtin says that's not the best way to understand the way a novel is put together. What a novel is are kind of quotations of ways of speaking. It's this kind of symphonic arrangement of discourses, quoted ways of talking, say in... Um, in Madame Bovary, they'll have the, the little bit of medical discourse, right, from the husband, the guy that's a pharmacist. They'll have this kind of discourse of the nobility. They'll have the discourse of the middle class. They'll have discourse of the shopkeeper. They'll have the things from the newspaper. They'll have little quoted bits of the kind of discourse that makes up our world. We live in a world of, of signs and, and ways of talking. And in the same way that, you know, somebody like Juno Diaz, We'll just throw in lots of comic book references. And uh, George Saunders has, you know, clips from, from ads and clips from technological discourse. Those ways of speaking are what make up our world. We tend to think about, you know, kind of realism, for instance, as a representation of the world, as if it's a physical representation of a physical world. Bakhtin says, no, what it is is a, is a linguistic representation of a linguistic world. The linguistic world is the one where we find our meaning. 
It's related to the physical world. And for him, that kind of heteroglossia, that is this kind of multiple ways of speaking that collapse upon each other in which a one word that the husband speaks in Madame Bovary has that kind of pharmaceutical discourse in it, but it also has the discourse of romance or lacks the discourse of romance. The, the kind of multiple meanings that accrete as you build this symphonic representation of ways of speaking are how the novel works and how we respond to it. Hetero. Glossia. These are words that when you first encounter them, you have no idea what they mean. And once you do, and once you kind of assimilate that concept, I mean, it's not a difficult concept, obviously, then the word becomes that, the word that refers to that thing, and, uh, and, and it becomes a shorthand for bringing that into any conversation that two literary theorists are having. I'm going to give you $20 if you could say those two terms at Thanksgiving dinner at my family's house. Let's see. <laughs> I, hope, I often do. Nobody listens to me as your family. Who's making the heteroglossia this year? <laughs> You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. My name is Seth Greenland. I am here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. They have me tied to a chair. This is Tom Lutz. I'm talking to Naomi Hirahara, who has two new books out. One, a novel called Grave on Grand Avenue. Another in her series on Ellie Rush, Bicycle Cop. And a new nonfiction book as well, Terminal Island, Lost Communities of Los Angeles Harbor, co-written with Geraldine Nats. Naomi, welcome to LARB. Nice to be here. This is the number... Number two in the series. Number two in the series. The first one was called Murder on Bamboo Lane. And as you mentioned, it features a young bicycle cop. She's 23 years old, a native of Los Angeles, and her name is Ellie Rush. (laughs) Uh, She's half Japanese. And her aunt is the highest-ranking Asian-American in the LAPD. So that's been her role model. And I made up a school in L.A. called Pan Pacific West. I didn't want to do the whole USC versus UCLA thing and alienate, like, half my readers. Probably, probably <laughs> wise to stay out of that, yeah. So that's where she graduated in three years in Spanish. And she has an assortment of friends. Her best friend's Cambodian-American. There's a Filipino. Her ex is like a Korean from Latin America. Purposely, I wanted a mix, an ethnic and cultural mix that I really believe reflects today's Los Angeles. And actually, a lot of the United States as well. But they are mystery novels. Oh, they definitely they are, are. There's dead are bodies. <laughs> procedurals. Would you call them procedurals or mysteries? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, with kind of a cozy, you know, this is not J- Joseph Wamba or, you know, some hard-hitting, you know, I'm the first to admit that. Mm-hmm. But there hadn't been a voice that she's not jaded, she's not alcoholic yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll, we'll give, we'll give her yeah, time. Yeah. Your last series, Massare, that was five books. And I'm continuing with that two more. Continuing with that as well. Okay. So how far ahead are you looking when you're working on one of these? Do you have... Well, with the Moss series, I actually have an arc. Mm -hmm. He's a gardener in Altadena and Hiroshima survivor based on my late father. Mm -hmm. So a character very dear to me and representative of a certain uh, group of people, these Japanese-American men who worked as gardeners here in Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s. So I was more deliberate with that series. With Ellie, I don't really have a grand plan. There's certain character arcs that I know I need to explore, so... 
Tell me about Hiroshima. You say he's a, he's a survivor. Where was he? My father was in the basement of the train station. Um, Moss is not my dad. Right, um, right, of course. He's, Moss is a curmudgeon, and I was very close to my father. But I will say, historically, their lives kind of line up. And one reason why is I didn't want someone to come back to me and say, well, historically, that couldn't have happened, you yeah, know? Right. So at least I had this map of reality, you know, that I could base it on. That's in the first book, Summer of the Big Bachi. Bachi means what goes around comes around. So there's this element of survivor's guilt that I'm looking at in the first book. And at one time, I think there were maybe um, 1,000 to 2,000 um, survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki who lived in America. Uh-huh. I liked using a character like my father who was born here but happened to be in Japan because it's such a loaded topic, so polarizing. Yeah, no, you said he was born here, he just happened to be there. It was not unusual for families like his. Um, his parents were immigrants, but they kind of sent, well, they kind of returned to Japan because my great-grandfather was killed by a horse in Watsonville. So these weird circumstances. <laughs> well, but I, I, I shouldn't <laughs> laugh at that at all, I know, obviously. But it, but, yeah. yeah, but it, that was not where I thought you were going. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. that's how life is, right? Mm-hmm. It throws you a curveball. So they went back to Hiroshima. But there were a lot of young men and women that were sent to the, quote, homeland mm-hmm. to study for a while because uh-huh. one was they really sensed a lot of discrimination here in America, so they didn't know what their future would hold. And second, some just wanted their children to, you know, get a sense of Japanese culture. They call it kibe. That's the term for these people who return. L.A. obviously has a solid history of noir writers and police procedural writers. You feel part of that group, part of that tradition? I do. I think I'm in the camp of, well, Chester Himes is in New York, but definitely Chester Himes and also Walter Mosley. So I'm from that branch. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, Himes is interesting because Himes wrote his novels about L.A. or not the genre novels, but those L.A. novels are so fantastic. They are. But what about the older tradition, you know, from Chandler on? I know I'm going to probably offend people, but I'm not a, a Chandler fan. Yeah. I'm really not. And I think that... You're not, you're not alone. There, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I... There's, that's a school of thought. I understand what was going on, you know, the whole thing about the loner, you know, and then the McCarthy era, and there's a lot of scary things out there, right? Mm-hmm. And there were all these others that were very suspicious and that, you know, Marlowe was trying to navigate. And I just don't relate to that character. And I actually, I did write an essay for Zocola Public Square about that. They, I think they initially wanted me to sing his praises. I tried, but I just, I go, I got to be honest. <laughs> so it was yeah. like my confession. I'm actually more affected by writers who write about the underclass. I think Death of a Salesman, when I was in um, high school, was very seminal to me. It's not a crime novel, but I like writing about, quote, ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And just that, wow, you could write about a regular person who who's, doesn't have like these courageous or really admirable characteristics, but it's just like a regular person. Let me uh, ask you, um, you know, the latest James Elroy novel. Perfidia. Yes. It was great. We organized a Facebook 
uh, book club. And many of them are very political or they're social historians. So it's they know a lot about the history of L.A. during the 40s as well as Japanese-American history as well. Right. Most of them really dug the novel. Mm-hmm. And although certain things could not have happened, like I forgot his main character, the Nisei forensic scientist. Yes. That um, was impossible. <laughs> there could not be a character like that in the LAPD. And I'm now, because of the L.A. Rush book, I'm starting to do more research about like Japanese Americans and Asian Americans in the LAPD. It doesn't look like they were really let in until like the 50s, mm-hmm. you know, certainly not before World War II. And then I think um, in terms of expletives, he used Jap, like, I, you know, since I had it on my Kindle, I think 600 times. <laughs> oh, yeah, so yeah, you ran the count. Yeah. <laughs> we ran the count. And, you know, so some people who were very offended. And he could be even slightly didactic. Like, I don't think other Authors could pull it off, but like this chunks of information about what the FBI was doing, you know. Yeah. Like if I were to do that, they go, oh, that, you know, she's just espousing all this stuff and she's not really telling the story. But he could, he could do it. And it's like, yeah, that's so cool. So. Let's talk a bit about uh, the Terminal Island book. Also published with a local press. Actually, right? that was a Port of Los Angeles project. Okay. And it was really championed by Geraldine Lance, who was the former port director. And she loves history and, in fact, is um, now a professor at USC. Mm-hmm. These islands kind of represent Los Angeles because they're constantly changing and moving. And, you know, through the will of man creating a pushing land together, Terminal Island kind of morphed into different shapes. It was a resort for the wealthy, white, wealthy people. And then when they left, there were squatters and there were artistic people and women who are artists who are writing and creating things. And the Japanese, you know, had many of them had worked on the railroad, you know, Terminal Island, Terminus, it's related to the railroad. And many of them happened to be from a place in Japan in which there was a lot of fishing. So it just made sense for them to get into fishing here in LA and they had certain techniques where they would use like a barbed hook and they would throw the the food into the sea and then through the flick of their arms you know catch a fish and then throw them on the deck there's like home movies of this and it's insane like how much tuna and other things that they're So as the canneries were established in Terminal Island, they needed a workforce. And so they actually built housing, you know, these really cramped housing, right? I mean, some people would call it a slum, Mm -hmm. you know, right there in Terminal Island. But they had this immigrant community that was more than happy to live there. And, you know, everything is based when the catch comes in. You need people to pack it immediately. So a lot of their wives, the women, some men too, some Filipino men, some Latino men, but primarily a lot of uh, Japanese immigrant women worked in the canneries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just 3,000 people there and they had their own schools. You know, it was, they almost had their own language because they were kind of isolated, you know, from the mainland. 
and um, like a like a Creole, a kind of half half exactly English, half Japanese, right, so, yeah. right, right. And the people from like downtown LA, they knew Terminal Islanders. They're they were rough kind of characters, and, oh, uh-huh. and you know they had a really hard life. So when they got a break and could go to Little Tokyo to drink, you know they were going to party. <laughs> so um, there's very few of the people who ex- really experienced that firsthand. They're now many in their late 80s and 90s. But even their children and grandchildren, they still continue to get together for like a New Year's celebration and there'll be a picnic in, in June. Thanks so much for coming in, Naomi Hirohara. We're thrilled to have you. Your new books are Grave on Grand Avenue and Terminal Island, Lost Communities of Los Angeles. Uh, thanks so much for joining Marvin. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK. Send help. Literary Hub is a new literary aggregator on the internet, and they have burst onto the scene. And I think the most amazing thing about this new site is they have managed to sell ads to the producers of Book of Mormon. I think that that's the most salient thing they've yeah, got going on right now. I'm jealous of that. But after that, they are promoting some uh, provocative ideas. They've got a piece called The Real World Versus the MFA by a writer called Marion Palaya. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Marion Palaya has, has jumped into the ongoing controversy about whether MFAs are worth it. But that's not what we're talking about today. Above the headline is something that says, Via Simon and Schuster. Well, it's a website that was designed to be a combination of original content and excerpts from books, right? It's a largely supported by, almost entirely supported by publishers themselves, and it's a place for publishers to get together and sell their books. That's, a, that's the purpose of it, the stated purpose, the, and its aggregator function that is, they put up one of our pieces now and then, they put up pieces from other book reviews. That aggregator function is not its most important function for them. Um, we all in the book review business get pitched by authors who are, and we get pitched by their agents and by their publishers, with pieces that the writer has written because they have a new book out. You do this, Seth, don't you? I, I have been known to do that, Tom. Yeah, we all do it. We write an editorial because we want to have the little line at the bottom says that, that says Seth Greenland is the author of um, I Regret Everything. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and so Available now. And on, on Amazon. Amazon. And where? At book, a, your book local bookstore. Book near you, yes, on yeah, Amazon, right. at uh, mostly, the Mostly side. a bookstore near you. What they're doing at Literary Hub is the same thing that we're all doing. I mean, I do feel like I curate what's coming down the pike that way, and I, I'm interested in some of them. I'm not interested in others. I do edit them, and when they come in, I, that is, I, we all look at them and think, well, this is an interesting piece, but it would be much more interesting if, for instance, in the case of this piece, it could have been better, it seems to me, in a number of different ways. It could have been more intellectually sound and, and argumentative. This piece that we're talking about. Persuasive. The real world versus the MFA. Yes, yeah. because Marian can Palaya. I just yeah. jump in on with, there's a rhetorical device that she uses at the end of the piece that I just found kind of amusing. I wanted to point it out. Throughout the whole piece, she's been talking about, are MFA programs worth it? Are they pyramid schemes? Her answer to that is, no, they are not pyramid schemes and they are worthwhile projects. And then she talks about how people say in this argument that if writing can be taught, then we are all f***ed. That's what she says. I'm, 
Uh, We're quoting. So whoever's yeah. going to bleep this, I want to point out that right. what Laurie said was actually in the quotes of an article that appeared on LitHub. Thank you, Seth. So near the end of the piece, she says, don't ever say that because right now, uh, the Syrians living in a refugee camp, they are that. In other words, they are the people who are f***ed. And the Libyans drowning off the coast of Italy when their boats catch fire, and those girls in Nigeria, and the Christians in North Iraq. I think it's kind of a lame therefore, rhetorical device. So therefore, well, therefore, MFA programs are a good idea. I don't, yeah, it's yeah a, or therefore, it, no. you're not allowed to say anything. And so the, I guess the point is that the we use pieces like this as well. And this is an interesting piece too, right? We're not. It, this is not a terrible piece. I mean, you've got some things you don't like about the rhetorical strategy she's using, but it's a it's a perfectly interesting piece. A worthy entry in the MFA. Yeah, worth sure. it, not worth it. Absolutely, genre. absolutely. And and as Until you say, and a, a seemingly endless appetite we have for these Apparently. for these arguments. So good on them, but it is uh, a marketing technique. But back yeah. to Lit- LitHub and their function. Then is there sheep's clothing of an aggregator? Going to completely watch me completely yeah. mix metaphors here. Okay. Is is the sheep's clothing they're using? To hide themselves as an aggregator, actually a Trojan horse. <laughs> you see the way I drove that through the <laughs> walls. A Trojan sheep. A Trojan sheep to to just deliver promotion. Is is it seriously? Is it just a fancy way it's to like deliver promotion? It's like a turducken. Really? Yes. Yeah. It, the, right. Well, yes, it is. It is. There's no question that it and is. And we're not and fooled. I don't, and I don't think that anybody's fooled. I don't think that they. they but does anyone care? Well. That's the interesting thing. I mean, aren't we all who do book reviewing in the business of selling books? That is, I mean, we do want people to read. Of we're course. All, we're and, all and, doing the same thing. And buy books. So it's, yeah. just, it's just, just a question, I guess, of how obliquely you want to come at it. And if you look at, uh, at Salon.com's book review section now, it's largely excerpts contributed by publishers. I did not know that. And Laura Miller is their book, a uh, very good book critic, and she writes some stuff. But but basically, that's about all it is. Solano owes me money, by the way, so I would like to just is say that right? this on the air. What that for? actually is true. I contributed something to a holiday feature they were doing, an omnibus thing, and was told I would be paid a huge amount of money. As soon as they got their Kickstarter campaign? That, <laughs> as Go soon ahead. as they got the Kickstarter campaign. And if anyone at Salon is listening, I've not gotten my check. <laughs> How much was it for? I'm not going to say on the air, but if you ask me later, I might tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, is this later? (laughs) Is this later enough? (laughs) I think we have an ending. The LARB Radio Hour is now available on iTunes. Download it there. It is no longer confused with anything else the LA Review of Books is doing on that site. Just go to iTunes, type in LARB Radio Hour. There we are. Download it. Give us a rating. Our thanks to Naomi Hirahara, our moral center and producer, Jerry Gorin. Thanks to the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. You have been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We will see you next week.